Open in prayer, just real briefly here. Father, we thank you for this this, uh, unique Lord's Day. Thank you that we can gather together, acknowledging you to be the greatest treasure, the greatest gift, the greatest uh, present we've ever received. And we thank you that you've given yourself to us. Now we give you, Lord, our attention. We give you our minds. We give you our hearts. Teach us, we pray, through your word. And may Jesus Christ be honored and glorified. And may our focus be on him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Looking back, one of our favorite trips as a family, when we would go and make a day trip here on the island, when our kids were young, we would take some of our out-of-town guests and family and make several treks over the years to Sagamore Hill. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but this spacious, old-fashioned home overlooking Oyster Bay uh, served as the summer White House for the early years in the 1900s, uh, the home of President Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, how many of you have been there? Okay, good. If you haven't been there, you need to go. It's been closed for a while recently, but I think it's open now. But the tour guides, when they take you through Sagamore Hill, they will draw attention to the fact that uh, the man who lived there, President Teddy Roosevelt, entertained in that home various state uh, heads of state and prime ministers and kings and ambassadors. And it's the same home, of course, that he's got six kids of his own running around, enjoying playing and having access pretty much any time with their father. As a matter of fact, imagine the excitement and the amazement and the surprise. Here we got the ambassador of Japan, the story was told. And and, uh, here he is uh, sitting down with the President of the United States and you have a bunch of kids running down the hallway uh, with a gaggle of kids, and here the president, of course, is chasing them while he's waiting to meet with the president. Uh, imagine the protocol there at Sagamore Hill when he's trying to discuss treaties and various policies affecting the nations of the world. Meanwhile, the president of the United States is playing tag with his kids. I mean, it's just it's comical, but it's really a cool thing that someone who had that much uh, stature would never lose sight of the little people his children in the midst of the great ones right in his hallway. One of the remarkable characteristics of Jesus Christ's incarnational ministry was his condescension. Condescension, according to Webster's, when I looked it up, says this, it is the voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relations with an inferior. So someone who has high position gives that up and devotes time to someone who is in a much inferior position. And certainly one of the most notable characteristics of Jesus' incarnational ministry was his willingness to voluntarily waive all of those privileges, the privileges of rank. And then he's going to minister instead to the people who were rejected, to the people who were excluded, to the people overlooked, to the people who were ignored, to the lowly people of the world. And I'll just give a quick backdrop of what Jesus did leave behind in terms of his rank and privileges. Of course, he entered the world at that time. He was rich in glory. He enjoyed continuous adoration and devotion of thousands upon thousands of angels. And while praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Before he was crucified, Jesus reflected on 
what that glory was like when he was with his father there before he came in his incarnation. He says, glorify me together with yourself, Father, Jesus prayed, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When Jesus took on human flesh, he left behind not his deity, but he left behind his enjoyment of the everlasting glory that was rightfully his for all eternity. Prior to entering our world, Jesus was also not only rich in glory, he was rich in possessions. Think about it. In John 1, we read that all things came into being through Jesus. And apart from Jesus, nothing came into being which has come into being. In other words, he made everything. And the earth, therefore, belongs to Jesus Christ. Everything in it. And as the Creator, Jesus owns every single thing. From stars to sandy shores, from moons to mountain ranges, from galaxies to gold mines, there is nothing in existence that does not belong to Jesus. His wealth cannot be measured. He also came and entered into our world, not only rich in glory and in possessions, but he comes rich in relationship. We'll have time to expand fully on this, but think about it, how Jesus enjoyed unending, deep communion, loving communion with his Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Again, Jesus, right before his death, thinks about these things and he reflects upon what glorious uh, harmony and, and love and fellowship and intimacy and joy with the Holy Spirit and the Father. He says, you, Father, love me before the foundation of the world. He didn't need other further relationships. He was, he was full of a sense of satisfaction and delight among the members and the persons of the Trinity. It's only if we understand the supreme rank and privileges that Jesus was entitled to and that he enjoyed before he entered our world, will we fully appreciate his voluntary descent to relate to people who were inferior to him? So let's think for a moment of his lowliness. What was his experience like with people who are his own creation? Well, Jesus lived a life of poverty. Although he and his stepfather were carpenters, we read in scriptures, he never owned a home. The gospel say the foxes, Jesus said, the foxes have holes, the birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His lifeless body, after he was put to death on the cross, was laid in a borrowed tomb. He never enjoyed great honor among the people in his hometown. You could say he was poor in respect and honor. And yet Jesus willingly ministered to other people in need. He told his followers, I came not to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for many. He gave his time to help other people, to heal other people. Listen to this interaction that Jesus shared with his disciples toward the end of his ministry when he knows he's about ready to offer himself as a sin substitute for them. He says, there arose also a dispute among the disciples as to which one of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. Can't you just imagine all this kind of thinking among them? And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader become as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? It is not the one, sorry, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. In other words, Jesus takes the normal way of looking at things, he turns it upside down. Jesus endured a constant barrage of criticism. He had an endless stream of opponents. They slandered him, calling him a glutton, a drunkard. They impugned his motives. They cast aspersion on his character. He endured all sorts of scorn and mockery in silence. He was beaten. His body was battered. He was crucified on a cross. He was speared in his side. And beyond even the horror of all of that psychological and physical sufferings that he endured, Jesus underwent the wrath of God. And that's why the text of Scripture, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. God made him who knew no sin to be sinned on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. What a reversal. What an amazing investment he made in others who certainly didn't deserve it. There is no greater act of condescension than for the sinless Son of God to die in the place of sinners like you and me, mortals that he made who rejected him. What a wondrous love. What humility of heart for him to serve rather than to demand to be served. You see, the condescension of Jesus is meant to be an ever-flowing stream of joy and refreshment for our hearts, causing us to be filled with wonder and amazement. Jesus' voluntary descent to rescue inferiors like you and me is one of the reasons that we certainly can be celebrating his coming at this time of year. All of us would do well, of course, to take to heart the condescension of Jesus Christ. Once again, we would do well to learn from him and his selflessness in his lowliness of heart. And so I want us to think about how we as people who struggle with pride, we struggle with our tendency to think of ourselves in trying to find recognition and to somehow compare ourselves with other people. It's interesting how Jesus confronted his disciples not once, not twice, not three times, four times in the Gospels. They are arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And forgetting about Jesus' condescension, they are fantasizing about the coronation, about their positions of honor and, and uh, respect among other people. The only suitable response to Jesus' voluntary descent into relating to inferior people, like you and me, is it says in Colossians 3, is to put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Think about it. Compassion means I have a heart that is concerned about somebody else in need. 
I'm moved with a concern for them and their well-being. Kindness means I'm thinking of ways in which I can show them help in a way that's not hurting them, it's actually helping them. Humility means I'm not thinking about myself, I'm thinking about somebody else around me who is perhaps in a needier situation. Gentleness means I do it with a sense of being aware of, of how this is going to impact them and doing it in a way that's not going to upset them. And patience in case they don't get it and they don't find it very easy. Uh, it's not easy to love them. Patience means I have to keep at it. I came across this quote about humility by C.S. Lewis. He said this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, less often. So the cross of Christ continually confronts our pride. It shines the spotlight onto the wonder of Christ's selfless, amazing, serving love. So it's not by accident that this text in Philippians 2 is given to us in the context of a situation where there was some selfishness going on among members of the church there in Philippi. There was some self-conceit conceit among the members there. And so Paul is trying to draw the lesson from the cross and from the, the Advent ministry of our Savior, calling people to serve each other, to be more concerned about the interest of others and not automatically focusing on ourselves. And he's reminding us by doing this that, of course, being concerned for other people is something we don't automatically do, something we need the gospel to continually remind us to do. And it's not easy. Let's be honest, it's not easy. It requires a dying to self. Jesus put the interest of others above his own, and in doing so, he voluntarily waived the privileges that were rightfully his to enjoy, but he did so at great cost to himself. As one commentator said, through his birth, his life, and his death, Jesus shows the way to be great in God's eyes. It is to go low. It is to love others, to serve others, to give up comfort, to give up privilege, and to do it all for the glory of God. I wonder if we view ourselves as being above putting ourselves out for other people. Do we insist on what we think that we are owed? Do we hold on to grudges? Are we bitter about another person's selfishness, about another person's insensitivity? Are we bitter about some other person's rudeness shown to us at some point? Are we easily annoyed with other people? How frequently do we really consider the people around us, particularly the people who come behind us? The custodian who cleans up after you. The clerk who waits on you the younger believer who is looking up to you and trying to understand what it means to follow our Savior. I have thought about some of these practical things, and I'd like to suggest to you a couple of them are, I'm going to put them, um, uh, well, first of all, I was going to just, uh, have an insert. Uh, I didn't want to give it to you now because I'm afraid you'd read it during the sermon. I, I, know what we, I know what you're like. I used to do the same thing. Um, and so they're available to you afterwards. Uh, the usher will have them. They'll be on the table out here. Feel free to take one. It's like a reflection on pride and humility and the contrast. 
And then it has the song, May the Mind of Christ Be in You. I also, as I've thought about this, uh, there's another book I wanted to uh, share with you, and that was, if you want further reading and think about these principles, Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney, a very practical, practical book on steps that he takes and inculcates in his life on how to, uh, to maintain a, a humble attitude. A little booklet out on the book table called From Pride to Humility. Very practical, very powerful. One, if you've never read it, you really ought to get one and make it something you read and reread on a regular basis. Be careful if you get it for your spouse and you're handing it to your spouse, you need to read it first and then keep it. Let them read their own. But finally, let me just conclude with this. Let me think about some of us who are rich and how we might condescend going forward in the year ahead. Some of us are rich, obviously, in resources. Pretty much all of us are, if you want to compare yourself to most of the third world. We're rich in resources. We have money, we have possessions. Think about what it means to share your material goods with someone who is less fortunate, someone who's poor, sponsoring a child overseas, being involved in people who, whose lives are still trying to make ends meet and don't have enough to buy food. The single mother who tries to make ends meet. The widow who's trying to live on a fixed income. How can you get involved in helping them in practical ways? Some of us are rich in skills. You can do so many things practically to help other people. Fixing things and raking and painting and serving in various practical ways. Perhaps you can share your know-how with someone who's inexperienced. Perhaps you can find someone who at some point would like to do what you do, whether it's sewing or baking or whatever it is. Share some skill you have with someone else. Some of us who are rich in knowledge, we have degrees, we have understanding, we have all sorts of collective intelligence that we've gathered over the years, and we can share that with people who are struggling to learn. People who are having a rough time trying to read. Nobody reads to them. There are no books in their home. There's no one encouraging them to do that. Perhaps you can be a tutor to somebody and help them move in the direction that you've already walked in the path. Some of us are rich in time, free time. You are a person, you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Okay, well, there's some of us it does apply to. If you're retired or someone that you uh, have much more free time than you used to, you can volunteer. You can get involved. You can say, here I am, I'll do little things. Perhaps there's someone who's overwhelmed with life and the hectic, busy pace of life, and you can say, well, here, I'm available, I can help you, I can do something, I can run an errand. Some of us are rich in relationships. You know who you are. People who have all sorts of time you spend on Facebook and social media, and you're in touch with everybody. Some of you have actual real-life friends, not just cyber friends. Maybe you can share your network of connections with a person who's lonely. And didn't you love the story that you saw recently in the video or the, the post, I guess a Facebook post, of this little sixth-grade boy in a uh, school down in Florida, middle school in Tallahassee, Florida, and members of the football team uh, the NFL, uh, Florida State, sorry, Florida State football team comes in there and they spend lunch with all these kids eating in their cafeteria. 
And this wide receiver, who I thought Travis Rudolph, a wide receiver on the team, notices that there's one kid sitting all by himself, and no one else is around him, and he sits down at the table right across from him and starts a conversation. And all of a sudden, guess what? That kid becomes a hero in the sense of everybody wants to sit with him the next day or the next day, but he began to show an interest in somebody that nobody wanted to spend time prior to that who was, had sort of, sort of autistic tendencies maybe. And uh, what a wonderful, simple gesture to show, hey, you have value, you're a significant person, I'll sit down and share a meal with you. Some people who are lonely have a hard time engaging in conversation. When you open your home and have a conversation over a table, you can ask questions and draw things out of people that they'll probably never tell anybody. Because you're asking, you're interested, and they have time, and probably they're enjoying your food. And so they'll talk and feel like they're connected. And lastly, I would just suggest some of us are rich in spiritual wisdom. Some of us have insight because we've been studying the Bible, been thinking about spiritual matters, and God has blessed us with numbers of years of, of people who have invested our lives and helped us grow spiritually. Perhaps you can invest some time in discipling somebody, in spending time with them, not in some sort of formal class. Just sit down and read the Bible together. Talk about what you understand it to mean. Pray together. Encourage each other. And help that person to fight the fight of faith with them and for them and beside them. Well, may the Lord help us in this regard. There's so many other things we could say, but let's trust God to teach us and use us for his glory. Let's pray. Would you take a moment and just think about which of those opportunities perhaps you might avail yourself of and thinking about how you could use the wealth of what God has blessed you with. Is there some way that you can Share yourself in the year ahead. Which area would you like to offer to the Lord? Would you make that something you could say, Lord, right now, I'm going to tell you, this is the area I would like to share myself and how I can be of a blessing to someone else. How I can condescend and, and invest in people around me who perhaps are not had all the blessings and the riches that I enjoy. And make that your gift that you offer to Jesus this year is to serve others and therefore honor your Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to be concerned and take on our interests. Thank you that you were willing to be crushed for our iniquities. You were willing to get to suffer in the midst of trying to save us from all of the, the mess of our lives and the consequences that flowed from it and to draw us into a relationship with yourself and to share your love and your encouragement and your joy with us day after day, even when we don't deserve it. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for reminding us of what really is great and important and significant in your kingdom. Use us, we pray, for your glory in the days ahead until the day when Christ returns in his second advent in all glory and in great celebration. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.